I am excited about today's interview, and it features the excellent researcher Nathan Akehurst and the much beloved anthropologist and lawyer Petra Molnar, who is also the associate director of the Refugee Law Lab and who has a forthcoming book that is tentatively titled Artificial Borders, AI, Surveillance, and Border Tech Experiments that Border Chronicle readers will definitely want to check out, and we will definitely let you know when this book is released. For today, the point of our conversation was to look at border violence and security in a warming world. And that is the title of a paper in which Nathan was the principal author. And we're publishing that paper right alongside this podcast. Um, the hope in looking at this particular issue and framing of climate change and displacement and borders is to frame our thinking as we get closer to the big United Nations summit in Egypt in November. Um, and for those who haven't done it yet, check out our discussion thread um, that we had last week in which we discuss this very issue. Um, in the podcast, we do spend a good bit of time looking at border technology and displacement and identifying those two dynamics as trends that are increasing with time and a way to look at the future. But Petra and Nathan ask and talk about the possibilities of a way out of this. Actually, um, maybe I'll start with you, Nathan, and just ask you, like, what on earth does climate change have to do with borders, right? Is there anything? So I guess the most useful way to come in on that is to talk briefly about borders and then about um, climate linked migration and connects the two. And I think the, there's been this huge expansion in what a border means in the last few decades that, you know, most people will think of them in their daily lives as the, the as lines that divide up countries, basically. But, you know, what you've seen is an increase in the infrastructure on those lines, the um, a lot of the technology. And I think it's something that Petra will get into more, but also the stuff, the, the, the legal regime at borders and the, the exceptionalism that allows you to get away with the, the sheer number of human rights abuses on uh, borders in, say, um, the Mediterranean or the, the southern US. But it's not just what happens on those borderlines. It's also the extension of the uh, practice and the technology and the logic of the borders kind of deep inside the countries that they're policing. So take, you know, ice raids or the ripping up of, of domestic law to protect citizens in a way that ultimately rebounds on us all. And then you've got this externalization issue of pushing the border outside of the country and you have these various kind of dodgy deals of other countries, these increasingly distant border posts and say the European border ends up being um, experienced halfway down Africa, the US border halfway through Central America and so on. And this is all happening in the context of climate change being an increasing factor in human movement. And that's both kind of direct displacement aftermath of natural disasters, that type of thing. Um, and also more broadly, the way in which a, a heating world and its effect on ecosystems, on economies uh, is, a, is a factor in why people feel they have to move. Um, and then you, you connect these two things up 
because actually, you know, a lot of climate linked uh, displacement movement isn't um, across borders, much less between the, the global uh, south and north, it's within countries. Um, it's, you know, it's people moving within the US uh, and the aftermath of a hurricane, say. Um, but there is a certain amount of cross-border migration and it's getting attention because a certain section of politics of the political establishment are obsessed with, with border control and with protecting and, and walling off the global north. And, and here you get into where it, it properly connects up, where you've got um, lock-up of, of incentives, where you've got people who profit from uh, border control and border control technology, the people who sell detention centres, uh, new tech, weapons, so on and so forth, that need new markets, and they sell the idea of expanding border control as a solution to the climate emergency in order to, you know, to, to protect to wall off um, our richer and more powerful countries from um, people moving. And they're kind of pushing an open door in a lot of places for two reasons. One, because as I've already mentioned, you've got, you've got a section of politics that, that sees political gain in attacking people who move, principally on the right, but by no means just on the right. And secondly, because you know states have all these uh, coercive um, uh, systems, they have huge military police border forces, and it's a lot easier to look at a crisis like climate and think rather than, you know, retooling our economy, retooling the way we do things, the way we think about uh, security and uh, public safety, you know, in order to deal with the actual problem, why not just use the, the resources we've got? Um, unfortunately, you can't do that because climate change isn't something you, you shoot at no matter how hard you try, but there is as I've gone through a lot of vested interests in convincing people that that that, that, that is how you deal with it. Yeah, I, it makes me think like thinking about the profit motive and, and that there's companies involved um, in this and, and there's money to be made. Um, you know, you know you, there's those market forecasts that are out there that look at um, like the border and or homeland security industries. And it's interesting to me that, it, you know, as we look at forecasts and especially in the last three to four years how how climate more is more often like entering the reason why these markets are increasing and I've, I've been looking particularly at like different border technology um these these homeland security technology forecasts and uh and it and it seems to me that as I, looking at those forecasts, and they often go into 2025, or the global market's going to grow to, I think one of them I saw was close to a trillion dollars by 2030. Um, I've seen like a way up in the billions, like $750 billion on this market. It seems to me that we're, we're heading to a world where there's more and more technological enforcement that's happening. And that's why I'd love to um, hear from you, Petra, about what you think about these sort of dynamics as, as we broil up in, a, in, in this climate crisis more and more. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Todd. I mean, I think it's, it's such an important element to all of this because, you know, I think a lot of the, the things that Nathan already mentioned, they really remind us that we are really dealing with a regime that's been historically violent and discriminatory and exclusionary, but it has been made all the more sharper, not only just by the degradation of the environment, but also through the use of these new 
and increasingly draconian technological interventions. And so for me, as a lawyer and an anthropologist, I've spent quite a lot of time now for the last over six years, I guess, trying to really get a sense of this global panopticon of, of this new border tech that's been springing up in some really difficult ways across the world. And, you know, for me, having a, a global perspective is helpful because sometimes the contextual specificity that we all look at is really important. But being able to kind of zoom out and see what is happening globally really shows this kind of broader ecosystem that gives rise to really high-risk tech with very little regulation, very little oversight, and virtually no accountability. And so, you know, I, I look at technologies, again, from this kind of broader perspective, whether you want to think of it in terms of migration management or border control or border enforcement, but these are the kind of ideas that oftentimes give the impetus um, behind a lot of these projects. But it's really been the proliferation of, of all sorts of things, such as more, I could say, traditional surveillance type tech like drones or all sorts of aerial surveillance mechanisms um, to automated decision making, making its way into visa applications to some really, really outlandish, super experimental stuff like so-called AI lie detectors at the border um, and sound cannons being rolled out and, and things like this. I mean, it's easy to almost think of it as something so dystopic uh, and almost something like science fiction. But, you know, for me, I will never forget this one moment. And it was actually right around the time, I think, that you and I met in Arizona. I was in the middle of the Sonora, and that is when the Department of Homeland Security announced that they were planning to roll out those really horrible robo-dogs, military-grade quadruped technology that, you know, has already been critiqued for all sorts of reasons in the kind of autonomous weapons space or criminal justice space. But to think that this is something that's going to be rolled out in already violent um, border zones was really horrifying. And there's nothing as <laughs> kind of strange and, and, and amazing about doing the work that I do because, you know, I was literally on the soil of the Sonora, <laughs> kind of seeing also the beauty in a lot of these borderlands and then also being faced with this cold, draconian, horrible technology. You know, for me, I often think about this, this strange dichotomy that a lot of us are engaged in when we do this border work. I mean, borders are inherently violent. They're inherently discriminatory. They are full of power differentials, but oftentimes they're also in such really beautiful spaces. I mean, the Sonora Desert environmentally is something so stunning. And same with the Mediterranean and the GNC or parts of East Africa where a lot of technology is also being tested, where I just visited. I mean, they're stunning places and you really see this strange confluence between these really affecting environments then being faced with this cold, dehumanized technology. There is something to be unpacked there as well, this kind of dichotomy. I really think about that a lot. Yeah, I do too. I think about that constantly. I mean, I go out into the desert here where I live just south of Tucson in the Sonoran Desert, and I'm just blown away every single time by just the beauty of it. And and then you just you start cruising around like you did Petra and you start maybe now we'll see robo dogs right or you see those um, integrated fixed towers that are now in certain places on every single hilltop I liked your terminology the global panopticon right I was I was just east of Douglas Arizona um, right along the borderlands and I noticed that every time I came down out of the hills like as soon as you got out of the view, view of one of those towers you were in the view of another and it was just the, the more I did, the more we traveled, the more it just seemed how aggressive this is, right? Those technologies. 
Yeah, totally. But what I found really interesting as someone who's kind of spent time in multiple areas is, you know, I think in the Sonora Corridor, it is much more visible. Like you, like you say, you see the, the, the towers, you can kind of feel this omnipresence there. You can also go to the wall and touch it and, you know, and then you lift your hand off and there's rust, almost like blood on your hand, you know, like you right. see it. Whereas in the Mediterranean and Aegean and a lot of the, let's say the Greek-Turkey border where I've done work, it's much more insidious. It's it's more difficult to see it. You don't you don't see it in that kind of embodied way. It's it's almost more disturbing when it's so hidden, right? But then of course, then you have those yeah. horrible prison-like refugee camps that are replete with all sorts of tech too. So for sure, that's also in your face there. Yeah, that's one of the also interesting things about it. Even in in the U.S. Mexico borderlands, you have the invisibility of a lot of those those technologies. So it's simultaneously invisible and very visible. It's visible when it wants to be and invisible at other times. And and I remember um, uh, going to the border security expo um, and seeing uh, the robo dogs being displayed. And and I think the the slogan behind the vendor Ghost Robotics, I think, is the name of the company. Um, and behind it was was uh, this slogan that said "Robots that feel the world," right? And and I was like, wow, that's quite a, that's like a drone, right? A ground drone. And then at the same time, feel this world we're in. Like, what world are we in? What What is this world we're in? Like, the world we're in is one in, in a climate crisis, right, too. And actually, along those lines, too, Nathan, um, like one thing that um I think is a is a huge important point in, is this idea of a border industrial complex. Um, I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit more what that actually is and how that works on a global in a global sense and how does that intersect with with climate sure so take um take this week right you've got the um this is a fantastic story in the guardian australia a couple of days ago about um alexander downer who's the former Australian foreign minister who was absolutely central to the kind of promotion and, and build up of the offshoring regime there. And I think terms like offshoring end up being kind of, you know, cover up the, the reality of this stuff. We're talking about the um, exile of hundreds of asylum seekers to, you know, off, off, off the coast and out of uh, sight of observers and monitors into conditions of, you know, ch- uh, children getting locked up, um, people um survivors these days with like lifelong um lung problems because of the the uh, chemicals in the old mines they were kept in suicide so on and so forth you know all all around absolute disaster but of course again it made a lot of people a lot of money despite the the you know horror and, and the squalidity of these conditions uh it was around i think five hundred thousand dollars and uh per asylum seeker and this this guy has um just been appointed to the uh, UK's um, independent or apparently independent oversight panel, which I'm sure will provide entirely uh, independent uh, advice um, of the Rwanda offshoring policy, which um, has been made the kind of flagship uh, immigration policy of the right-wing government in Britain. And also sitting on that panel is a consultant um, who works for the Danish state doing a similar kind of offshoring scheme there. So So there's 
yes, a part of it, which is politics and states and sharing all this expertise and and building it up. But as a part of it, it's private as well. So, you know, the, the um, G4S, Serco, the um, big kind of state contracting firms that kind of wouldn't exist without states in a way are um, responsible for running the detention centres in both Britain and Australia. Um, a lot of the tech that Petra mentions will be um, produced by the same firms and then marketed um, in similar ways in hugely different uh, operational contexts. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's another interesting report from Corporate Europe Observatory that came out about it about a year ago or so, which like reveals that the, both the number of players and the level of aggressiveness with which they lobby, um, uh, say, the European Union and, and, and a kind of behind um, how uh, state border expansion policy, such as the kind of the, the four or five billion uh, euros, I think it is, that Frontex is getting over the next over the next five years. You bring climate change into this, um, and I'm going to lean on on another um, piece of recent reporting here, which is came from Friends of the Earth in February, and you see how linked up all these all these industries are, and you see um, you know, some of your big kind of investment firms, your your Black Rocks and your State Streets, and the money that they've got in. Um, in border violence, in all of the firms that I've just mentioned, in uh, oil and gas, in all the kind of uh, firms that are much more directly responsible for, for climate breakdown, and in big agribusiness and the land clearances and the violence necessary to carry out the extraction and dispossession that agribusiness depends on, and then also that being another kind of major contributing factor in climate change. You can see the kind of vicious circle of climate of extraction, climate pollution, and the uh, movement that drives, and then the way in which like violent and uh, responses to that movement are sold. And at every point of um, the, the, the process, the um, same batch of firms who often also have a kind of revolving door between the people that sit on their, on their boards and in positions of power are um, bringing home the, the money from it. Right. Um, actually, I'd like to ask you this, Petra, would like when you look in terms of what Nathan's describing and almost a, this industrial complex, it just seems like it's honestly, it just seems like it has this life of its own, right? Like it's just propelling into the future, um, the same or more of what we're already seeing. Right. And, and so like, what, what do you see? What, how does that mean, like really physically and tangibly for people? I think that's such a good question because I think it gets at one of the scariest elements of all of this. And I think for me, it's it's really realizing how seemingly intractable a lot of this is because there's so much money to be made in big tech and then big border tech that we're talking about. And, you know, you mentioned um, going to one of those expos. Um, I've also been to some here in Europe. And I have to say, you know, I've seen some really, really difficult stuff over the you know last decade or so of doing this kind of work. But I have to say some of the most disturbing stuff came from those kind of expos and conferences where the private sector is selling their wares to the government, these kind of tech toys, so to speak. Except these things are robo dogs, they're drones, they're tanks, they're military grade technology. And it's clear that the bottom line, obviously, of the private sector is to make money off of this. It's not 
to be human rights compliant or to assist people with asylum applications or anything like that. It's, it's to make money. And for me, you know, from a legal perspective, what I find really disturbing is we're really talking about some fairly problematic public-private partnerships where you have states making partnerships with private sector for the development and deployment of this tech that they themselves can't do in-house. And then it really skews not only kind of what is normalized, like somehow we've just accepted that robo-dogs are the next thing, right? Like why wasn't there a public discussion about any of this? It just happens. And then all of us, you know, human rights monitors, lawyers, journalists are playing catch-up, trying to say, hold up, like what actually is happening? But for me, it's actually more insidious than that. It's also about priority setting, right? If you have the private sector so baked in and their whole bottom line is to make money and to push particular priorities to the forefront, it's perhaps not surprising, you know, that we're developing AI lie detectors to be tested on people at the border or refugees and not using AI to root out racism at the border. I mean, it's a bit of a simple example, but to me, it's so instructive because there's a clear priority that has been set in the system. And because the private sector is, is out to make a big buck, I really don't see this changing anytime soon. If anything, actually, I see it getting worse as the world turns sharper in terms of border enforcement, as more um, people will be forced to move due to climate displacement, and as more kind of inroads the private sector is able to make, it's going to be really, really difficult to undo. The lie detector uh, technology is caught my attention. Like, what is it? What is how is that working? Is that being deployed in places yet? So it so the, the project I was referring to is or was called I Border Control, and it was one of the Horizon 2020 projects, which basically means it got funding from the European Union for the development of a so-called AI lie detector that purported to discern whether someone was more likely than not to be telling the truth when interacting with an avatar at a border. And this is just one of those projects. There's also another project called Avatar that was going to be rolled out um, in different jurisdictions. But just as an example, this is one of the ideas that was kind of being pushed forward. And just as an aside, you know, as someone who's a part-time academic, I find this piece interesting. There was a university that was involved in the development of this project almost as a kind of academic washing or objectivity washing this kind of project. And I think that is a huge, huge piece to this conversation too. You know, different actors that are involved in the political economy of this development, including academics, we, we all have to be very, very careful about this kind of stuff. But for me as a, you know, if I put my refugee lawyer hat on, I mean, lie detection generally is very, very dubious. In certain jurisdictions, even a traditional lie detector, you know, the one that kind of goes back and forth that you see on CSI or whatever, that's not even admissible in a court of law, for example. So now we're developing AI type lie detection and to then be tested out on people who are migrating or crossing borders or potentially um, claiming asylum. I mean, how can an AI lie detector deal with differences in cross-cultural communication? I mean, I've represented people when I used to litigate that didn't feel comfortable making eye contact with a decision maker of the opposite gender due to culture or religion or a variety of reasons. And then perhaps more subtly, what about the impact of trauma on memory? And the fact that, I mean, we never tell stories in a linear way anyway, let alone remembering something mundane like what I had for breakfast yesterday. Imagine, you know, when you're trying to recount the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to you. 
You know, I'm just trying to stretch it, but it, it, I think it's important to think about this stuff. Human beings, human decision makers have a problem with plausibility, credibility, and truthfulness. We make very, very problematic assumptions about how a person is supposed to act, quote unquote, at the border, in a refugee claim, you know, and a lot of these are very global north, very Western norms of plausibility that don't map onto the diversity of lived experience. And that's when humans make these decisions. So imagine what happens if we start augmenting or replacing human decision makers who are already flawed with the complexities of human migration with a machine decision-making project. Hugely, hugely worrisome. Ooh, it's like a glimpse into the future that's chilling, right? It's, uh, um, I, I remember the University of Arizona was, was or is, I'm not sure if that's still happening, but they had, they were developing a lie detector technology and people would have to put their fingers in. I think it took their pulse, like going across the border. And when I go across the border, which I do quite often, and I have the documents to do so, I still feel nervousness or and I'm not even being at you know like anything that you're saying like there's and then right Nathan with the kind of combination looking at at a world of more of that stuff and more border enforcement and of course more walls and 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 it's almost like you have to just look at all this as the same right quote-unquote smart walls and yeah so there's a, there's a couple more points I wanted to come in with on this um, the first is about like international action and, um, you know, and there was something very interesting that happened a couple of years ago and you're seeing more and more of it recently. But the example I want to pick on was in, in Ceuta, in this uh, Spanish enclave in Morocco um, in 2021, where um, there was this, you know, significant movement of people in a very short space of time across um, a narrow channel into um, Spanish territory. And there'd been this kind of dispute between Morocco and Spain beforehand uh, over something to do with Western Sahara. But anyway, the, the point is that um, Morocco was promptly accused of, of weaponizing migration um, of trying to force uh, Spain's hand into doing its diplomatic bidding by allowing people in. And, you know, there, there are a few things coming out of that. The first, that, like, it's a way of justifying behaviour that would otherwise be regarded as absolutely inhuman, because suddenly, you know, you're you're not talking about the humans, you're not talking about the, the small boy floating across the channel on... Um, couple of like plastic bottles that was, was in all the footage you're talking about a hostile state and then that with that like justifies the kind of militarized response to it um and the other thing is, is that you know even if even if that's true even if like states are increasingly using this stuff in the context of interstate rivalry well that's the world we've created right because we have these whole system of uh deals with, with third countries um that allow the global north to kind of outsource its violence beyond its own borders, to not be held accountable but on, under its own uh, human rights processes, and to, yeah, to air its, its dirty laundry somewhere else. And so then, you know, what does that do to diplomacy? What does that do to the kind of world you're creating, the kind of factors and uh, that are governing interstate relations? And I think one of the most pernicious parts of this is that so often then these deals are sold as kind of as partnerships to do with like development and resilience and and action on our, on our shared challenges and all the kind of you know softer language you, you would use about these things. Um, and then I think that the, the final point I'd want to make, make about that is that 
all of this is sold and again is publicly justified as as protecting us in some way and you know we've this is an age-old story right there's always been this kind of attempt to get people to trade freedom for security and that ends in in them getting neither um that's not new but the 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 scale of the the technology and the power involved is new um, and the existence of the climate crisis and the very real possibility of, um, you know, significant parts of, of the ecosystem breaking down is new. And I think that's, I think that's a message for the climate movement that, you know, that a lot of, there's a lot of climate activists that will think migration is this like third rail in Western politics. It's a nightmare. As soon as you touch it, you open a can of worms. And, and actually, you know, you have to talk about this stuff. You may think that it's difficult, but you need to deal with it because the whole the whole process that we've been talking about is a process by which the impetus towards climate action gets misdirected into border violence, into decreasing uh, stability. And the you know, people who care about the future of the environment and the future of, of human life in that environment need to think, we've spent years saying it's time to act, it's time to act, it's time to act. And the, and the central question now is, well, what is this action actually going to look like? What are the, you know, um, who are the actors involved going to be? And what incentives are going to underpin how they act yeah that's uh like looking at for example the u.s department of homeland security and going into their into their uh documents around climate change you can go back to what like 2013 um and see their climate action plan and they're talking about you know understanding that displacement's going to happen in an in increasing fashion in Central America and like in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador, they specifically mention those countries or or also the Pentagon reports on climate change that have been going on for decades now. What do they have? They I think the year they look 25 years into the future to plan for future battlefields. So they're always looking in the future. Right. So you have um, so the, the idea in the U.S. It's it's kind of comical and at, at sometimes because you have a, a military establishment that's quote unquote conservative and then you don't think they're they're looking at climate change at all, but they totally are and they're looking at it completely and and how they determine what future battlefields are. And I would say with battlefields I'd now put borders because the border is a battlefield and an invisible battlefield at times that's not really captured, but it's a battlefield. I mean just looking at these realities increasing displacement projected nobody knows how much it will be uh and another thing to mention is ability for people even to go back to where they like if their sea level rise or desertification can people even return to where they were the places they're leaving and internal displacement monitoring centers shows every year you know that i think the average is about 25 million per year that they've been able to to tabulate as people being displaced due to climate or due to environmental reasons, which they associate having to do with climate. And then you have the other trend, which is the borders, the global border apparatus. And so I want to pose this to you both. We have this big climate summit coming up in Egypt, right? And the next month in November, what, like, if you could go to the table there, if you could take something that you think might even be implemented, let's just imagine that that could be the case. I know. First of all, do you think that this, these issues are being understated at these climate summits? I think, Nathan, you, you alluded to that when you were just talking. 
And then what would you bring and how would you emphasize that this is something that needs to be taken on on a global level? And then what what should we do about it? I mean, you know, I think ultimately it's just reversing where we are at the moment, right? There was this fantastic um, uh, piece of uh, statistics that came out around the, the last call and that tracks the difference between the amount that was being spent on increasing border security in these various absurd ways and the amount that was being spent on uh, climate finance for, for the global south. And in some countries, it was up to 16 times as high. And, you know, I'm slightly simplifying and generalizing here, but if you could just simply swap that route, if you could say, well, you know, we take all this, all this um, resource funding thinking and um, political, financial, moral energy that is going into creating a more divided, more dangerous uh, world and start putting it into, into actually protecting people, into uh, uh, helping people, into um, ensuring that people, you know, well, quite often have the right to stay as well as as, as well as the right to move, that, that um, environments and habitats are protected, but also that when uh, they do move, they can do so in safety um, and in, in dignity and um, in uh, uh, a better world. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think sometimes in these conversations, particularly, you know, when we talk about these high level summits like COP and like various different fora that we're all part of, um, you know, at the, the national or supranational level as well. I think it's easy to forget that we're talking about real people. We're talking about real people who have rights that we've all agreed that that's something that, you know, are afforded to every person on the planet, freedom of movement, the ability to apply for asylum and seek protection. Um, you know, and I'm a reluctant lawyer, right? Like, I don't think that <laughs> the legal regime as it stands is sufficient by any means, but but it is there. And I think we've we've been talking about it in so many kind of obfuscatory ways. And, and often, again, yeah, I think we forget that there are real people at the center of this. And I think one of the reasons why that is, is there's a lot of talking about communities without involving them really from the get-go in these conversations. And so I think that is something concrete that could be done better, whether at COP or whether at other um, similar events, is, is really interrogating what does meaningful participation from affected communities look like? I mean, are people invited to the table? Are they not even invited, but are they allowed to actually set the table themselves? Are they the ones who get to determine what kind of world um, we are striving for, right? And I think really our space is also, um, we need to do a lot more work in terms of making sure that, that the lived experiences of those who are at the sharpest edges of these violent borders are really front and center uh, in the conversations. Totally concur. And that's, I mean, I went to the Paris one in, in 2015 and that was so... There's a whole indigenous contingent that was just almost completely and totally left out of out of the main conversations and couldn't even get in the doors uh, to get in there in the first place. And lots of people are talking about that. So that's a huge issue. Um, is there anything else that you would like to, to say about any of this before we sign off? Just to say thanks for having us. I think, you know, we, we think in creative ways and, and I think it's, it's really wonderful to have these types of um, podcasts and conversations cross-cut disciplinary lines as well. And I think it's really great what you guys are doing. So thanks a lot for, for having us on.
Yeah, I mean, I'd say one last thing. Petro mentioned the power of, of the uh, law briefly as much as a, a sceptic of evidence she, as she may be sometimes. And, you know, last week, um, a, a very interesting case began. It's a guy who um, was was left for dead at the um, Aegean border in um, by a Greek Coast Guard boat um, under the supervision of uh, Frontex. Um, only a boy at the time, you know, not even turned 18. And after being forced back to Turkey, you know, having been through the, the worst experience of his life, he's come around again to not just surviving, but to be up in court um, at the moment, taking Europe's border army to task for their actions and to try and achieve some kind of justice and accountability for it. And if um, he's able to do something like that, to go from point A to point B in that way, then we all can, can and should uh, have hope and keep the faith and, you know, imagine that as bad as things might see at the moment, um, things can change, things do change, and we can we can and will win. Yeah, Um. one last thing. Could you just let listeners know where's the best places to find you? If they want to find out more about your work and what you're up to and find more of this analysis that you're that you're imparting today. Sure. Um, I co-run a project called the Migration Technology Monitor, which really aims to push resources into mobile communities and um, really give people who are on the move themselves the ability to think about border surveillance and border tech. So if you go to migrationtechmonitor.com, I think, <laughs> um, that's us. Uh, we're also available in French, Spanish and Arabic, as well as English. And we are starting a fellowship program for people on the move who will be doing a lot of projects on border tech in the next year. So stay tuned for that. And if you want more of the academic side, check out the Refugee Law Lab at York University in Toronto. That's my academic hat. Thank you. Um, and for my part, I mean, I'm I'm not really on Twitter much. I'm advised following me there, but I write for Jackman Magazine often on uh, board stuff. So that's probably where you can find most of my uh, recent work. Um, and also, I would just um, like to again thank um, Todd for having us on and to plug the Border Chronicle, um, where obviously the paper that I drafted on um, some of this stuff will be available. Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It'll help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.com. Thank you.